0: Ezekiel chapter 16, starting from verse 1. Again the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor robbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. I said to you in your blood, Live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth, and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen, and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments, and put bracelets on your wrists, and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, and earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, and silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, and honey, and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colourful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, you set before them for a pleasing aroma, and so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth, when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God, you built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passer-by and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians, because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea, and even with this you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers bringing bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings so you were different from other women in your whorings no one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you therefore you were different therefore O prostitute hear the word of the lord thus says the lord god because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols And because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them, that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy." And I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you, and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more so will I satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things, therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? Behold, everyone who uses proverbs will use this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter, you were the daughter of your mother, who loathed her husband and her children, and you were the sister of your sisters, who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite, and your elder sister is Samaria, who lived with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom, with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, Within a very little time, you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did not and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they, and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters. Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace for you have made your sisters appear righteous. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I will restore your own fortunes in their midst, that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state, and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered? Now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her, and for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord." That you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame, when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Our second reading comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Ephesians chapter 2, starting from verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world
1: Uh, Good morning. Great to see everyone here. It's great to see people back in church again. Uh, It's super weird to preach uh, just to a camera as we're doing during lockdown. Uh, I think last week there were only about 10 people here in in the church. It's great to see people back in the building again. Uh, And hopefully before too long, perhaps even next week, uh, we can fill up to maybe 75% of the church and then hopefully not too long after that uh, back to full capacity again like we were able to do for a couple of weeks. Um, thanks for the reading, Simeon. It was a long one, and I'm sure it wasn't an easy one to sit through, especially for the Ezekiel passage. Um, if you are new to our church, a really warm welcome to you. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm the senior pastor of the church, uh, along with Steve, who is a pastor as well. Uh, and we'll be adding Randy uh, uh, to our uh, to our mix uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Actually, in a week's time. So um, hopefully, I'll get a chance to introduce Randy to you officially and formally uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, here at SLE Church, we do preach through uh, books of the Bible as the, the, the majority of, the, uh, of what we do. Uh, and so as we preach through um, chapter by chapter uh, and different books of the Bible, we will preach through passages like this, uh, which we will usually try to just kind of skim through because it's either too in your face or it's too difficult to understand. Uh, and, um, and we'll be missing out. Okay, so I'll be working through this passage uh, in a moment and see what God has to say to us uh, through it. But before I do that, as I did last week, I want to explain some terms just to make sure we get what's going on when we read the Old Testament. So last week, if you remember, I explained that there is a country, uh, there's a city called Babylon uh, that belongs to a region or place called Chaldea. And so in the Bible, when you see Chaldea or Chaldeans, um, it's the same kind of, it's interchangeable with the word Babylon or Babylonians. Okay, so that's one thing. But today I want to explain to you about Israel. So Israel, as you may know, is actually a person's name to start with. Uh, he's, uh, he used to be called Jacob, and he became called, he, he's got his name changed to Israel, and he became the father of the nation of Israel. Right? He had 12 sons, and he became the 12 tribes of Israel. So when you read in the early part of the Old Testament, the word Israel stands for either this person's name or the nation, which is the people of God. But then later on so in their history, they had a big civil war, a big split, And they split into the northern and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had ten tribes, and the southern kingdom had two tribes. Just to make it confusing for us, the northern kingdom uh, remained uh, its name as Israel, even though they were the more unfaithful nation. Uh, And then the southern kingdom became known as Judah, right? Judah and Benjamin, the tribes, became known as the southern kingdom. Jerusalem uh, is and still uh, was the capital of Israel as a whole, and was the capital of Judah. It was kind of the center. It remained the center, really, uh, of God's people. Okay, so uh, in terms of history, what is helpful to know is that in between 740 to 722 BC, so the dates are a bit wrong there, 740 to 722 BC, the northern kingdom Israel, they were exiled by the Assyrians when they were the world superpower at the time, uh, and then they were intermingled with the nations, and Israel never kind of came back together, right? They were mixed up, and we know them as the Samaritans in the New Testament. They were people who were Jewish people who married other people from other nations and became mixed. Uh, About 150 years later, uh, in the time where Ezekiel is set, uh, the Babylonians were the superpower and they exiled Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, as we've been hearing over the last few weeks. That happened between 607 to 586 BC uh, and we'll be hearing about 586 BC in a a couple of weeks' time as we hear about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Uh, 607 is when the exile first happened, kind of books of Daniel uh, in that period. And then for Ezekiel, it's kind of 590-something, right, which we looked at. So uh, hopefully that helps you to situate yourself. Because so what's going to happen is um, I will tend to use the word Israel as a descriptor for the people of God rather than talking about Judah or Jerusalem, which is also a descriptor of the kind of people of God. It gets a bit confusing, but I'm going to stick with the word Israel, uh, more meaning the people of God as I, as I, as I preach through these chapters. Uh, but I just wanted to let you know about that, Okay. Okay, so that's enough kind of background history. Hopefully that helps you understand your Old Testament as you read it. It gets a bit confusing with all the names sometimes. Um, but what's important now is we pray to God, uh, asking that he will really help us to understand what is going on in this chapter <clears throat> and how we're supposed to respond to it. Okay, let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who speaks to us through your word. And at times, we we do get to hear some uh, truly uplifting uh, words that really uh, give us joy and and motivate us and inspire us. And yet we come to passages sometimes, like we do in Ezekiel 16, which seems so strange, so difficult, so confronting, offensive even. And so especially now as we come to a passage like this, we pray for your help, that by your Spirit you will make known to us what is exactly your message here. Uh, What exactly is it that you are trying to say to us and most importantly, how we ought to respond. As we, pray, uh, we pray now as we prepare to hear your word, uh, that you will not just um, stir our minds, but really stir our hearts. That we might just not just know what your word says, but we might feel it deeply as well. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now when I got home from church last week, uh, one of the first things that Faith commented about the sermon that I preached last Sunday was that I should have given a forewarning before I used the illustration about adultery. So if you were here last week, you'll know what I'm talking about. I gave an illustration about adultery. It was a bit confronting and face it. You should have given some forewarning, uh, right? Did someone already flash that out for me? I will do the clicking. Thanks. Okay, so um, I want to give you the forewarning right up front, right? You've already heard about reading <coughs> um, before from Simeon, um, and you would have heard that it's a very confronting passage. In fact, the English translations that we have, so we read the ESV here at uh, SLE, but if you read NIV or any other version of the English, you will notice, or you may notice, you may not notice, but I'm letting you know that actually the English, uh, it it kind of tones down the language, right? It makes it sound much more uh, palatable uh, in our English compared to the explicit, strong language that's in the original Hebrew. In the original Hebrew, the language really pushes to the very limits of propriety, of appropriateness. Um, uh, In the English, it's kind of gone from being MA-rated, maybe even R-rated, down to PG. It's very much a PG-rated kind of language. Even though it still sounds quite strong in the English, it's actually quite PG. Now, let me say up front that I will be keeping this sermon very much pg Uh, especially in the first service, there are teens that were listening in, uh, and there is no need for me to give you the -the behind-the-scenes understanding of the Hebrew words and ideas that are glossed over and toned down uh, in our English. But that being said, I do want to push the boundaries enough for us to be able to feel the impact of this chapter because it was written in a in a very in your face in an explicit way for a reason right uh, it is confronting and offensive and shocking and deliberately so well meant to be shocked by the things that we read uh, in this chapter you know, in life, sometimes when things are, are really bad, like when, say, our hearts are sick uh, and they are dying and they stop beating, uh, we need something pretty strong, right? We might need uh, CPR for someone to, to kick our hearts back to life or maybe a shot of adrenaline. But sometimes they won't be enough, right? Sometimes you need the full-powered shock right, of, of electricity to, to wake our dead hearts back to life, right? The electric shock, full electric shock to wake a dead heart back to life. Now Israel, the people of God back then, were spiritually dead in so many ways as we've been hearing over the last few weeks. Uh, Last week in chapters 8 to 11, we, we saw how dead Israel were as they turned their backs on God through their idolatrous worship in the temple of God itself, as well as the fact that they were so violent and so socially disgusting to their fellow human beings. And then in chapters 12 to 24, which we'll be looking at for these three weeks, so today, next week, and the week after, uh, we will show why Judah has gone into exile. What did they do that earned God's wrath that sent them into exile to Babylon? In chapters 12 to 15, which we won't be covering in detail today, uh, there is a case that is made against Israel. And in these chapters, we hear very familiar themes if you've been around for the last few weeks. We hear about Israel's sort of stubborn rejection of God's word doesn't matter that the prophets speak to them, they won't listen. You will hear them have this smug denial that judgment's coming. They're like, you know, you talk about judgment, it's never going to come, whatever. You'll hear about Israel's um, false prophets that were arisen that didn't speak for God. They spoke what man wanted to hear. And then you'll hear about idolatrous elders, right? Stuff that we've heard before in the earlier parts of the book. They come in a familiar prophetic form, Right, the Lord will tell Ezekiel to give the words to the people. The Lord will justify the crimes of the people and the judgment that is about to fall. Okay, so the prophecies or the prophetic words of chapters 12 to 15 uh, are still meant to stir the sick and dying Israel right, to respond with repentance and with renewed faith. The words of chapter 12 to 15 are meant to stir the readers like us today to respond with repentance and renewed faith. However, they they can be like chest compressions and the shot of adrenaline, right? It may not be enough. Sometimes we need something more shocking, a, a more shocking word from God to shock our dead hearts back to life. And I think that's what chapter 16 is doing here, right? I think that's what chapter 16 is doing here. There is a clear change in genre and tone in chapter 16 compared to the previous chapters, which were more like, you know, a simple case brought against Israel and the judgment is to come. Chapter 16 is a change in tone and genre. This chapter presents to us a story, And and stories have a a way of getting under our skin, doesn't it? Have a way of getting to our hearts. We're supposed to feel when we hear a story. This story uses extreme language and imagery. It is confronting and shocking. We are supposed to feel strongly about this story. We're supposed to feel deeply about what we hear in this story of Israel. See, throughout this chapter, God wants us to feel strongly about how Utterly disgusting sin really is. We're meant to feel the weight of that, and then we're meant to see and feel how utterly and amazingly gracious and faithful that God really is. So if you're not much of a feeler today, then maybe it's a chance for you to open your heart, right, your emotions to the Word of God. Now, the story begins with a baby born uh, in verse 3 to Canaanite parents. That is to say, that they are born of poor pagan pedigree, right? The Canaanites are the vile people in the region who really were wicked people. They were born, they came from that, they were among those people to start with. But even worse than that, this baby girl is utterly unwanted. So much so that the, the, the mother, the, the parents, didn't even bother to provide any form of basic care the moment the child was born. Right? They just kind of left the umbilical cord kind of less hanging there. They didn't bother to wipe down all the blood and the, and the fluids that are on the baby. In fact, so, so unwanted, so poor this baby is that we're told that, that there is no pity shown by anyone right, to this newborn child. There is not a smidge of compassion shown. In fact, she was treated like how I would treat the trash tonight. I would throw my trash in the bin just as this baby was thrown out like the trash, right, onto the sidewalks. So f- Abhorred, unwanted, and abandoned from the moment of birth. is this kind of drama of this baby born, but then the Lord God walks by. Like the Lord God walks by, and we, and we see how the Lord treats this kind of abandoned baby. Israel is an abandoned baby, and the Lord becomes her lifesaver. He provides the care, the, the cleaning, the clothing, and all the things necessary, not just for life, but for flourishing life, right? Not just, not just the necessities, but a flourishing life. The Lord takes on full responsibility for this child, adopts this child in entirely by his own initiative and by his own doing. And then as the story continues, we see that the Lord walks by a second time, and this time the child has grown up. Israel is now seen as a vulnerable woman. Her breasts have formed, but she's vulnerable. She's naked, exposed to the big bad world. And now the Lord God comes by and takes on full responsibility for her. He spreads his garment over her, just as we hear, you know, Boaz spread his garment over Ruth. Uh, it is a symbol of marriage. Right? He um, he takes her in as her bride, as his bride. He makes promises to her, makes a covenant with her. And, and once again, it's entirely God's initiative and doing. He is the the one who does and gives everything to secure and ensure her protection, her her happiness, her genuine well being. As we read through these verses, we see that the Lord God acts responsibly, tenderly, passionately, and lavishly towards her. Have a listen to verse 9. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist, and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I have bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Do you hear the the next level kind of lavishness, right, that is lavished upon this, this woman? She's not just clothed, but clothed with the finest cloths known to man. And add to that, right, accessories and jewelry on every part of the body that can be shown off, right? She was blinged out, right, to the absolute max, She's given an opulent, overabundant life of riches and the choicest food. Right? She was living it up. But perhaps the greatest honor and blessing that is given to this abandoned and abhorred child is that she is now exalted as a queen, as a royal, splendorous queen. A crown is put on her head and bestowed on her is, is, is beauty and glory and splendor that became renowned to the world. Now, in the history of Israel, this actually happened, right? In the the high point of Israel's kingdom, under the the, the leadership, the rule of King Solomon, in all of his wisdom and all of his wealth, the Queen of Sheba came from a faraway land to to gawk, to to admire, to, to take in. How could it be that something so wondrous can be on this earth? The high point of Israel. Israel as the queen of the Lord God. Now the start of this story in Ezekiel 16, it's it's better than any rags to riches story that you've ever heard or ever watched in any TV show. From abandoned and abhorred baby of, of poor pagan pedigree to the exalted queen, the bride of the Lord God Almighty, unmatched in royalty and splendor and glory. But sadly, the story continues, right? This is just the beginning, the background in a way. And and we wonder, how will this woman respond to her remarkable change in fortunes? How will she respond to such generous grace and lavish love? Sadly, we read on to verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore. Because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. Doesn't that hurt your ears? She played the whore. That English word, it sounds so vulgar, doesn't it? The hearing, that kind of word. And we'd rather hope for another word that was used here. It would make more sense, would not. It would be a bit easier on the ears, would it not. It would be a bit kinder, would it not, to just say that they were adulterous. You know, like the illustration I used last week that Faith didn't really like too much, right? She committed adultery, right? She was unfaithful to her husband. We would rather prefer that God said that about Israel. But the word that God uses is the word zana in Hebrew, which literally means to commit harlotry, to be a prostitute that sells your body for sex for money. It's a word that will appear 18 times in the next 20 verses, 21 times in all. All of you leaders in training, main point and purpose, how do you find your point? Repeated words, right? What is the repeated word? What is the point of this passage? That Israel is a whore. That's such a confronting thing to say, isn't it? it? It's as if adultery is too mild a word to use about Israel. Because adultery is usually when someone commits unfaithfulness to one other partner But for Israel, she had multiple partners. Israel's unfaithfulness is far worse than we can imagine, and that's why whoring is the word that is used. It's got much greater shock value, much greater impact on our sense and sensibilities. Remember, we're meant to feel. We're meant to feel greatly and strongly towards God's word today. We're meant to feel strongly about sin. Sin is described in the most graphic terms because it is an enormous, atrocious evil. Women feel that as we hear what goes on with Israel. And so the story continues the sordid story of Israel's whoring. We're told from verse 16 to 22 that she uses her God lavished beauty to lavish it on passerbys that came by to entice for herself new lovers. For her, her, for her desires and for her passions, right, to be fulfilled. And we're told that out of the God-given garments, all the, the best cloths, she erects tents of worship. And all of the gifts of gold and jewelry gifted to her by God, her husband, she makes and fashions idols that she will bow down to worship. She would whore with multiple man-made idols out of all the precious materials that God has given. And the fine food, the oils and the flour and the the gourmet bread, the sweetest honey, she would serve as offerings to these new lovers. Doesn't that make you feel angry? When you hear this, doesn't it like kind of raise up that, that, that kind of ire in your gut? How could she do this to her husband, to God? We ought to be shaking our heads in disgust and disapproval. How could she do this? Can anything be more twisted than what this woman is doing? But it gets worse. We're only up to verse 22. Isn't it? it gets worse. Have a look at verse 20. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? But not only that. This woman offered the gifts that her husband had given her to new lovers. She offered the children that they bore together, not just in offering to these new lovers, but to slaughter and to set on fire. Now, this story is mainly metaphorical, right? It's meant to be, like, dramatic. But here it's actually literally true. That Israel, in her worship of pagan gods, actually sacrificed her actual children, her, children her, her sons and daughters of Israelites to pagan gods in worship. This is all part of the, the disgusting and gross religious idolatry that Israel committed over hundreds of years. Now, sadly, the story doesn't end there, it doesn't just end at religious idolatry. Not only did Israel play the whore with pagan idols, they also played the whore with the nations around them, right, with the world superpowers of the time. And so as we read from verse 23 to 29, we see, in a way, a bit of a a very quick historical uh, flirtations and, and whorings with the nations, starting from the Egyptians, who were the superpower at the beginning, and then the Assyrians later on, and then the Chaldeans or the Babylonians in the time of Ezekiel, right? In turn... These nations were the superpowers, and so Israel would flirt and would whore with them, hoping from and seeking from these new lovers the protection, the security, the salvation, the, the success that they wanted out of life. Instead of putting their trust in the Lord God, you know, the one right, who had brought them from absolutely nothing, abhorred and abandoned, and made them into the exalted queen, you know, that God. The one who called them out as a people, as a nation, even though they were nobodies. Abraham was nobody from nowhere. Right? Called out and given blessings. The, the amazing blessing of being God's people and receiving God's blessing, flourishing, nourishing, cherished, exalted, and glorified. Instead of trusting Him, they went into bed. Israel got into bed with other nations and other gods. Now, at the end of the story of Israel's political whoring, we hear this in verse 29. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea, and even with this you were not satisfied. Right? You were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things. The deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Now the final part of the story of Israel's whoring really takes things to the next level of lowness and disgustingness. God says to Israel, you are worse than a whore. Why? Because even prostitutes, they receive money for their services. But you, Israel, you pay people for your services. You pay people to be your lovers. Right? Prostitutes receive gifts from their clients, but Israel gives their gifts, the, the gift, God-given gifts to their lovers. Instead of being solicited and tempted, they're the ones doing the tempting. They're the ones doing the soliciting. They're the ones going out there seeking out new lovers to give their bodies, their, themselves, their worship too. This is truly messed up, isn't it? It's truly messed up. It's a level of shamefulness that even the other Canaanite, the other pagan, the other gross, wicked, vile people wouldn't even do. But this is the story of Israel's unfaithfulness, told in such a shocking way for us to feel something, disgust and depravity. And so when the story does continue, when the judgment of God is sentenced, on this woman we see how it is not just entirely just but it is truly deserved right God will use the, the woman's lovers to judge the woman the lovers that she had sold herself to the ones that she took on as lovers and then she ditched and she took on new lovers these people these nations will be the ones who will turn around and will be the, the, the ones the, the agents of destruction the ones that will execute God's judgment on them it is these ex-lovers who will systematically tear down the idols that Israel has built up. They will be the ones that will bring an end to all of these high places and all, these, uh, all of their pride and all of their lewdness and all their disgustingness. This is poetic justice, isn't it? This is really poetic justice. Uh, this, is rea- this reality is played out in Israel's history. Right? They're The nations like Israel and Assyria and Babylon, they're the ones that came back and turned their backs on Israel and conquered them and destroyed them and brought judgment on Israel. But not only will Israel be judged and destroyed, they will also bear the shame of what they have done. Right? They will bear the shame. The news of their utter shamefulness, their utter unfaithfulness, right, will be made into like a proverb, as you see there. Right? A proverb, um, a, a well-known, f- uh, um, it, will be a, it will be broadcast in a way right, to their social media of their time, to the nations all around, as to what kind of people these people are. And what a disgrace they are. In verses 44 to 58, which is a lot of detail there, which I won't go into, Israel is basically compared to the surrounding nations. All right? People who used to be, in a way, their siblings. Because remember, Israel, before they were Israel and God's people, they were part of Canaan. And so Sodom and uh, Samaria, uh, they, are, they are spoken of as her sisters, Right? And they were renowned, they were infamous for being a disgustingly vile kind of people. Sodom and Gomorrah, as many of you may know the story of. And yet Israel exceeded even them. Verse 47. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done, right? Israel was twice as sinful as the Sumerians. Israel, who had been called out by God, made into a treasured and holy people, ended up being twice as bad as the pagan nations who did not have God and who were set in their wicked ways. And so Israel's shame and Israel's disgrace and Israel's guilt will be broadcast and made known to all. As verse 58 so clearly puts it, Israel will bear the penalty for her lewdness and abominations. And as the Lord declares in verse 59, for thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Let's get to this point in the story, in a way, that the end point of God's judgment. I think we can't help but nod our heads in agreement. And we will say to ourselves, how could God not respond right, in this way? It is completely understandable. In fact, it is completely necessary that God respond in some way. How could He be treated like that? Such a disgraceful, unbelievably vile and disgusting way that God has been treated It's only just and fair. In fact, it is necessary, isn't it, that God does something about this. In fact, if we were God's friend or God's best friend, we would have said to God, you make sure you have nothing ever to do with that woman again. If this were a drama, this were a TV drama, a Korean drama, say a 16th episode, which is the best amount of episodes for a Korean drama, by the way, if this were a TV drama, right, we would have been cursing out this woman. Right, from episodes 1 to 7 probably would have been the, the beautiful love story, right, of verses 3 uh, uh, to 5, right? We'll see the beautiful romance, right, uh, of this uh, uh, completely loving man, right, who lavishly pours out, um, you know, his, his, his life, his love on this woman and made her into basically the queen. And then from verse 8, something out of the blue right, she would just be doing these atrocious things, and we would be there cursing her out whenever she occurred on our screen, right, I'm not sure if you guys do that when you watch TV, but I just get really worked up, right, everything that they do, right, I will be like, uh, right, and I'll, I'll, I'll be waiting for episode 8, episode 9, episode 10, it gets worse and worse, and then finally episode 60. I know that the hammer is going to drop, and it does, right, the woman gets everything that she absolutely deserves, and I'm like, fist pumping. Right? And I'm like, yes. There's this deep sense of relief. And, and even a, a, a joy. You, know, you don't want to be happy, but you can't help but be happy that justice has been done, right? That such a, a vile, disgusting, unfaithful woman gets everything that she deserves. And you are not expecting this to be a comedy, a romantic comedy that ends well. You'll be happy for this drama series to be a uh, a, a tragedy, right? And in fact, if in that last half an hour of episode 16, which is when they resolve everything, suddenly the man turns around and goes, Oh, that's okay. I'll, I'll receive you back and I'll pour all the, the lavish love on you again. You'd be like cursing out the writers. I'm never watching this dra- uh, drama written by this writer again because it just would not make any sense. Maybe that's just me. Okay, sorry if you're not a drama watcher. I love dramas because I get involved in stories. I have a boring life, so dramas are good. Nah, no, just kidding. But, you know, you know what? Humanity should be glad that I'm not writing the story of humanity. Humanity should be glad because most of us have an innate sense of justice. You want revenge on this woman, I think. And so we ought to be completely floored when the story of Ezekiel 16 continues on into verse 60. I remind you, right, verse 59, right, it ends with, I will deal with you as you have done, right? You will get everything that you absolutely deserve. And then verse 60 says, "Yet, Yet, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant, Then you'll remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you for all that you have done, when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God... Like what? Where did this come from, right? Out of the blue. What's going on here? Israel's unfaithfulness is off the charts. So 59 verses. We can't help but feel the vile unfaithfulness of Israel. And yet the Lord says, I will remember my covenant with you. I will remember and I will remain faithful to the promises that I made to you. Israel is utterly undeserving of any good thing from God. All of the gifts that she has received from God, she has spurned and used it on other lovers and God says I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. I will never ever stop being your God. I will never ever stop giving you life and giving you flourishing and giving you blessing. I will never stop exalting you and glorifying you. This, This is the kind of God, that the Lord God is, right? Remember the point of Ezekiel? That you may know that I am the Lord. What kind of Lord? What kind of God? Well, this. This kind of God. I, unbelievably gracious. Like I, I don't know how many exotives I can think, right? Ridiculously gracious. Unimaginably gracious. Now, for those of us who already know this, he wants us to remember, always remember, what he is like. And for all of us, whether we already know this or not, He wants us to be confounded, which is just a, a big word for saying mind-blown. He wants us to be mind-blown by it, right? About his, his love and grace. For us to really stop and really wonder on, on many occasions, how can it be, God, that you can be so utterly gracious, disgracious, now, the reason that God can show such grace to people utterly deserve of utter destruction, people utterly deserving of the full penalty and punishment of sin, is because of what He says in the final words of this chapter in verse 63. When I atone for all that you have done. When I atone for all that you have done. Just as the Lord God alone initiates and does everything to adopt Israel in as His child, just as God alone initiates and does everything to form a covenant of marriage and exalts her as His queen, so also to be able to redeem and save them from the utter judgment of their utter unfaithfulness, God alone initiates and does atonement. Where justice of the crime is served, But reconciliation can be offered. So you see, the story of Ezekiel 16 is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now in a a less dramatic and a less metaphorical way, but in a no less powerful way. Ephesians 2 is basically the story of Ezekiel 16. Right? Let me read for us. Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to the first part of the story, right? You were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Can you hear that? We were dead of utterly poor pagan stock. We were unfaithful and deserving of full judgment. That's the nature of all humanity, is right? Israel is a picture of humanity. And then we read, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Hear that. The ridiculous mercy, grace, the lavish love of God poured out on us. He atones for our sins through the death of Jesus Christ. The the judgment that we deserve, God takes on Himself. His death pays for our sins. His death gives us life. Gives us life. And then He secures for us an eternal covenant where we will never be without God again. Without His flourishing and without His nourishing, without His blessing, without His exalting, without His glorifying of us as we look forward to an eternity without sin, the full redemption. You see, Ezekiel 16 gives us the weight of emotion and feels that we ought to bring into our understanding of the gospel of Jesus. And so in terms of application, there is no kind of concrete application. This is not a go go off and do something kind of sermon, right? This is a stop and feel kind of sermon. Ezekiel 16 is a story that is meant to stir our emotions. It is meant to go to work on our sense and sensibilities. It is meant to shock us with shocking language and imagery to shake us up to the core. We are meant to sense and feel the shock of sin against the Lord God. Now, we might not be as vile as Israel, but it gives us a picture of what the vileness and the disgustingness of sin really is like. For us to really feel the way that sin is really very horrible. Unfaithfulness to God is just unthinkable. Don't go there. We can't just know these things to be true. We must also feel. We must feel the weight of its truth. Because unless we feel the weight of the truth of the disgustingness of sin, we will never feel the weight of the glory of grace. We will never be amazed by the lavish love that God pours out on undeserving people like us. I wonder whether you've ever felt the gospel. I know we are a church that majors on the Bible and we teach it faithfully and we want to make sure that people understand and we do point and purpose and we exegete and we do all those things, right? Just because we are strong on the, the knowledge doesn't mean we can't also be strong and big on the fields, Right, we 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 do want to avoid the 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 excesses of the, of the of the charismatic kind of mania, and maybe we, you know we 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 are, we have an aversion to, to emotions because we feel like maybe we don't want to be part of that kind of uh, wrong, maybe over-excessive expressions of emotion. But never does the Bible allow us to not feel anything about sin and grace. We're supposed to be feeling people. God made us not just as heads. But it's hearts and hands, right? It's a whole people in response wholly to the God, to God. That's the kind of reflection that we need on a passage like this, right? How do we feel? I think all of us here, if you've been around for even just a few weeks, will know in your heads about sin and grace. But let me ask you now, how do you feel about it? Right? How do you feel about it? It's okay to feel. In fact, it's necessary to feel. Sometimes we need more than just chest compressions and adrenaline shot. Sometimes we need the full shock of God's word to to wake up our dead hearts. I won't apologize because God doesn't for giving us a shocking word today. But it is a life-giving shock that he's trying to give us today. Come alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have heard a hard word from you today, a shocking word, yet it ends in a shockingly unexpected way. Please help us. Please help us by your spirit to feel the weight of the horror of sin. Help us truly to be disgusted by it whenever we do return back to our old sinful ways or whenever we are unfaithful to you in the way that we still seek after and pursue the idols in our lives. Even though we, we, uh, we are not like Israel, in the depravity of their sin. And perhaps we are not like the world who, who, who are unrestrained in their ungodliness and unfaithfulness. Yet at times, we do recognize that we do take sin in our lives too lightly. In moments like that, as we reflect on the, the grossness of sin as a whole and the sin that still remains in our lives as believers, uh, we pray that you'll help us to feel the weight of that in order for us to be able to appreciate even more just how glorious your grace is. Help us to feel just that, that joy, that peace, that, that tear-inducing happiness and relief that you have atoned for our sins. Please help us daily to rejoice in the gospel, to be happy about it, uh, to, to have an emotional response, Help us not just to be people who know things in our head, but are called in our hearts. This we pray in Jesus' name.